On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. I wonder a little bit about the state of the disciples on that day. I mean, for those of us who've gone through Holy Week and have found it at times rather draining and a full time, but feel exhausted at the end of it, how was it for them? They'd had much more of the ups and downs. Theirs wasn't just a remember of Christ, a remembrance of Christ going to the cross, but they watched him suffer and die. There were those times of darkness where for all of the promises, for all of the expectations, hope seemed to be crushed right out. And you wonder about the darkness of those times. And now they've come to that first day of the week and the reports have filtered back in. First of those who had been to the tomb and found the stone rolled away, the body gone. Discussed before an empty tomb and yet the grave clothes were there and some saw angels in that place. Subsequently, they've heard reports out of Some of the women, Mary Magdalene and some of the others that they've seen Christ risen from the dead. And even St. Luke will tell us that by the time Jesus came to meet with the eleven, already Simon Peter had seen the risen Lord. But still, what are you doing with all of that? How unsettling is all of this? They're living in some fear. We hear that the doors are locked where they're gathered. And then Jesus is in the midst of them, and his first words are, peace be with you. Seem like fair words to speak. Think of the calming of the storm, thinking of the settling of down of things within them. And yet, I'm struck that his words are more than just, don't be afraid, as we hear on other occasions. I think he's saying more to them than just, settle down, don't be so worried that he's speaking to them of the heart of what's going on at this point, because what follows is the showing of the prince in his hands, his feet, the nail wounds that are there, which you might think at first is the, well, that's the proof that this is the same one who has died for them. But I think at this moment, there's more than that, that he is pointing to the efficacy of those wounds. That is not just that he's been wounded, but that this is the sign of the perfect sacrifice that he has offered to reconcile them with the Father, to bring them to peace. He speaks those words of peace, and any parent among us knows those times when the kids are getting kind of worked up and you say things like, settle down, you guys. If you're really godly, you might say, hey, be at peace, or I had an old colleague Anglican days, who became an Orthodox priest but had six children, and at times his words were, cool thy collective jets. (laughs) Good kids in that family, huh? (laughs) But still, but there's still the sense of, of peace, not just be settled down, but be reconciled now with God. Understand what you're seeing what you know in this moment. At the Last Supper, he said, Peace I give to you. We'll remember these words in a few minutes again. 
You know, peace, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives it. This isn't just the peace that settles things down and quiets them for the moment. But this is a peace that brings you to a new relationship with God. And I think particularly in this context, it's important that the next thing that he does is to breathe on them to receive the Spirit in order to go out and deal with sin, to go out and see people reconciled to the Father. I've read the commentators over the years who have said that this story is John's version of Pentecost, the outpouring of the Spirit. And I think to draw that conclusion, one can't really know the Old Testament. The Spirit is given in the Old Testament at times for particular anointings on people. Those who are filled with the Spirit, but for a particular purpose, for a particular time. Everything from kings, so David being filled with the Spirit, but through to the craftsmen, set aside at the time that all of the furnishings are being made for worship in the wilderness. You can think about Bezalel and Oholiab, Exodus 31. For them and for others, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship. So men who have some gifts already, but he's going to anoint them. Those who are going to devise artistic designs to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood for work in every craft, and have given to all men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony, the mercy seat that is thereon, and the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils, and on it goes, all of the things to prepare for the priestly ministry of the people but a particular anointing for that purpose. And these apostles being anointed to go out and be about that ministry of reconciling people to God, dealing with sin, the sign that they're being given, this context of him showing of his wounds at this point, of the efficacy of his sacrifice. They're to call to mind at this point, not just what Jesus has suffered, but the fulfillment that is there of Scripture. And as he points to his wounds, not just that this is the same man that they saw suffer and die, but this is the one of whom Isaiah spoke. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that made us whole. And with his stripes, we are healed. His suffering was to bring that reconciliation with God, to bring us to peace with God. The uh, collect that we pray on this day, you might notice the, the two parts that are there, the reference to him dying for our sins and rising again, for our justification, to set us free from the sins, the separation from God, but then to see us to be justified with God. We we miss it if we think just in legal terms. We think of kind of a debt being paid so that we go off by ourselves. We need to think about being made right with God, being restored to right relationship. It's not about us being delivered to go and wander back into sin. It's about us being set free 
to enter into that new life with God, to enter into His peace, to enter into His everlasting life. Talked at different times about there being in Hebrew and Greek two key words that get used for um, for rest. In the Hebrew, nuach and menucha, and in in the Greek, anaposis and kataposis. In both cases, the first word is one that has to do with a, a temporary settling down, a temporary refreshment, if you will, even when Jesus invites people to come to him. He says, all of you who are carrying, who are carrying your heavy burdens, who travail and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's talking about that first rest, a refreshment. Let me set aside your, your burdens. I'll, I'll give you that refreshment. I'll wash your feet. I'll get you ready for what's to come next. But then there's a rest that he offers to his people that is to come when they've actually entered into the fullness of his will. Deuteronomy 12. They find that the people are told by Moses that they've come into the land. God has given them rest from their enemies. Well, they haven't dealt with all the other peoples in the land. They didn't do everything they were supposed to do. It's a temporary settling down of the conflicts. They're actually warned that the peoples they did not move out of the land, they didn't deal with, will be thorns in their flesh in days to come. They won't have a lasting peace, but this is a a rest for the time being, a settling of conflict. When I talk about how often when we say, hey, be at peace or settle down there, um, we're thinking of just, you know, stop fighting. (laughs) Be at rest for the time being. But the other word that comes up, and Moses talking to them in Deuteronomy 12 will say that the Lord has for you a rest which is to come. But it's that rest when they enter into his perfect will, when they actually worship him as he's meant to be worshipped, when they let go of themselves wholly and come to be with him. And in the Hebrew, that's that menuka. In the Greek, it's that kataposos. It's the, it's the settling down in him. And some of you have heard me say before that, that classically, that's the description of what marriage is to be, where husband and wife settle down with each other into that that perfect trust with one another in that perfect peace where they are at home with each other, where they give themselves completely to each other in love, where they are well setting forth kind of the divine love. And then they're an image, they're an icon of the Holy Trinity and the love that is freely given and received. Well, that's to be our perfect peace. In Hebrew, we regularly come up against that word shalom, which is the peace word, but it means more than just be at peace, quiet down. It always means a perfect sense of well-being, entering perfectly into the Father's will. Likewise, in in Greek, the word for peace, some of you will know. Um, Anybody who has a friend named Irene, or if it's in your own name, Irene, in the Greek, is it's derived from a verb that, that means to be joined together. And it's again that sense of the joining together and reconciling love. 
Jesus offers to His disciples, that peace. That's what they're to enter into, but it's also what they're to share in their priestly ministry. So important in the world, they're going forth to to deal with what separates us from God. Just I think it's of immense significance that John will tell us that this first occasion when he's really with the eleven together, that what he empowers them to do is to go out in that ministry, reconciling people to God, dealing with sin. And the two parts of it, they're to declare sins forgiven. You know, whatever sins you forgive, they are forgiven. And so many of us, so many of us need to know forgiveness of sins. We know that to know that God can forgive us our sins, that there's nothing that's there that has to separate us from Him. That everything that might ever happen in our lives has been taken on the cross in Jesus. From God's end, the forgiveness has already been offered. There is nothing that is to separate us from God, from His love in Jesus Christ. And we need to be bold in declaring that because a lot of people are bound up, some who feel that they've committed unforgivable sin, that they're not worthy of His forgiveness. Well, none of us is worthy of His forgiveness. That's part of the gift. It's His grace. But He's done it. It's not that if we're good enough, He will do it for us. He's already done it on the cross. We need to come and enter into that. We need to hear that good news. At the same time, they're also told that those whose sins you retain are retained. That there are some sins that are not forgiven. Well, what sins could not be forgiven? I just said that everything can be forgiven. Well, those of which we have not repented. God is forgiven, but we don't receive that forgiveness. And Jesus warns on that one awful occasion where he speaks of an unforgivable sin. It's when they're beginning to call the works that he is doing the works of the devil. And we end up exulting in the words, in the the acts that are in fact demonic, issuing the very things that we ought to to be holding fast to the things of God. It is a real concern in the world in which we live that there is so much deception, there are so many lies, there are so many things that have been turned right to left, upside down, where there are sins in which people are are exulting, which need to be identified as such, not to condemn them in their sins, but that they might see clearly those things that need to be put away in order to be reconciled with God. There are things that we are turning away from that we ought to be turned to in the Lord. And there we just think again about how often Jesus talked about this whole attitude of the kingdom, that it's not about lording over others. It's not about standing in judgment. It's about us all standing together under God's judgment, bringing his light to bear. The first step in all of that is ourselves being reconciled with God. Ourselves coming before our Lord crucified, gazing upon, even touching those wounds, knowing that in them and by them we are healed. But knowing that it is an act of grace that ought to overwhelm us when we're overwhelmed by His forgiveness for us 
We're that much freer to declare that forgiveness to others. On the one hand, we might remember Simon Peter after that miraculous catch of fish, as the Lord called him, being on his face before the Lord and actually pushing him away, saying, go away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man, I'm not worthy of this. And Jesus speaking words of peace at that point, that Peter didn't really understand, but would understand better in the years to come. But we might think especially on this day of St. Thomas coming before the Lord, the one who, who struggled. And we call him Doubting Thomas, but every time we come to the story, I want to say again, who believed before they saw? At the end of St. Mark's Gospel, we hear that Jesus upbraided the eleven when they were together, because they had not believed those who had seen, especially those women who were dismissed as, oh, well, that's the kind of idle tales. Those are the, you know what women are like. They come up with these fanciful ideas. Well, the women were the first witnesses. They were the ones who were at the foot of the cross, who were there when he was buried, who were first at the tomb. But Thomas, like the others, needed before the Lord to behold his living presence. I don't know about your own take on it. The art regularly depicts him sticking his hand in the side or touching the Lord. And I've always felt that when he was confronted with Jesus, he didn't actually need to do that any more than Job needed to have his questions answered. The intellectual ones, when he was face to face with the Lord, he was overwhelmed by the presence. He knew that merciful grace he recognized the efficacy of these wounds, the, the effectiveness by which sins were dealt, that nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Jesus Christ. Wonderfully, John, at the end of our passage today, sums up his gospel. He's given us signs. He's not told us every story that had happened, every, every teaching of Jesus, though he opens up some things that the others gave us just glimpses of. He says there are all kinds of other signs that you could have been shown. But these ones that I've set before you are here in order that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, Son of the living God, and that believing you might have life in him. The intention is not just to convince your minds, but is actually to lead you into that living encounter with the living Lord. The disciples on that day had been empowered, had been commissioned to go out and to be the witnesses, filled with the Spirit whom Jesus said would come to convict the world, to remind them of the things that he had said, to lead them into all truth. And now the Holy Spirit filling his apostles sends them out to be his lights in the world, to show sin for what it is. Not simply that which separates us from God, but that which has been overcome in Christ. The gap has been bridged. In Jesus we can be freed from our sins, made right with God. As we come in this Mass on this day that is both the second Sunday of Easter, the end of the octave, but is also Divine Mercy Sunday. We're reminded not simply that Jesus rose from the dead, glorious miracle that that is, that he overcame 
sin and death, the power of the devil, the grave, but that he has brought us into that life, into that reconciling love, has opened to us the way of eternal life in him. Good news for us, good news for the world. May we encounter him again, even as they did in the upper room. May we find ourselves as Thomas before that magnificent presence, crying out, my Lord and my God, knowing ourselves gathered in that love, in Christ, all of the separation taken away. And as we enter into that life, may we be those who are sent forth in his name to see the world reconciled to its maker and redeemer, its beginning and its end. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side.